Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to remind you that we have a ton of extra content over on our Patreon. We do movie watch parties, special Patreon bonus episodes, and all other sorts of wacky stuff that you can access easily if you head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 2008, director Catherine Bigelow and star Jeremy Renner gave the world a haunting look at the day-to-day life of those fighting in the Iraq War. In 2023, we try a rye whiskey that's sure to be an explosion of flavor. (laughs) The film is The Hurt Locker. The whiskey is Michter's US-1 Rye. (laughs) We'll review them both. This is... The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we are looking at Catherine Bigelow's 2009 Best Picture winner, The Hurt Locker. Brad, right off the bat, let's just go ahead and say this. Uh, It's our first Catherine Bigelow movie. We're moving into a new Mm -hmm. director here. This might be. I'm Moving into a a new gender here. A new gender. This is what I was going to say. I don't know that we've ever had a movie by a female director on the podcast before. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to say this right now. Maybe one or two. For all of the cancelers out there. I don't pick the movies. That's <laughs> so. for all the cats, for all the, the people with torches. Bob's house is that direction. <laughs> yes. I'm glad we're getting this like we're, we're addressing this up front because it says a lot about what we value in movies and, and what is celebrated in movies that we have been doing this podcast for over four years. Brad, we've looked at almost 200 movies now. I think next week is going to be our 200th film on the film and whiskey podcast. So we'll be a a 1% representation. One half. Yeah. Next week, we will be at a 1% representation. And that, I mean, like truly and honestly, I don't want this conversation to only be about the fact that she is a female director. But when Mm -hmm. we mention things like this on the podcast, it truly is because it is, I mean, the, the numbers are staggering in terms of men to women who are in positions like directors in Hollywood. And for Catherine Bigelow to accomplish what she has as a woman, I mean, you can't not talk about it. It is an incredible accomplishment. And I'm excited to talk about her films, Brad, because I think she's a hell of a director. Yeah. Well, and, and here's a genuine question. I, I'm i I'm a little bit glad that it worked out that our 199 and 200, you know, give us the 1% representation because I'm curious, how many films do you think are actually directed? Like, how far do you think our percentage is off? From the norm. Oh, that's a great question. I don't know, man, but it can't it, be it, it can't be that far off. That's what I'm saying. So I, I maybe this is coming across as me trying to like defend our podcast. And I, I hope that's not the case. 
But like, you know, there's not a lot of movies made by women out there to review. Mm -hmm. And so, like you said, Bob, the the awesome thing about this is we're not reviewing them because, well, we got to get Catherine in there because she's a woman. Right. We're getting them in here because she makes really good movies. Yeah. And I think, again, I, I, I think this is why when we talk about when people say representation matters, like the whole history of movies that we have celebrated have been predominantly from one specific kind of person. Right. I mean, like, you know, I remember when you and I sat down and did our Apocalypse Now review, Brad. And you know, I'm a guy that likes Francis Ford Coppola, but we talked about how Coppola making Apocalypse Now is kind of like, I don't know, it, it's it's peak white guy making a movie like he got all the resources anybody could ever get. He made a movie where like people died. He went out into the jungle and had all this creative control. And meanwhile, like it's not for 30 something years after Apocalypse Now comes out that Catherine Bigelow even gets to win an Oscar. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a really important thing. And I'm really glad that. In a season where we ha we're having a lot of firsts, right? We're going to be doing Charlie Chaplin here in a little bit. We're going to be uh, looking at Akira Kurosawa in a couple weeks. It's cool that our first first of the season is to talk about Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, uh, I do also want to mention uh, this is a complete aside, Bob. I was I made the perfect burrito today. <laughs> It was incredible. And as I was as I was eating it. <laughs> as you were eating thinking, your burrito and thinking was, about the lack of female was, representation in Hollywood. Yeah. No, I wasn't thinking about that at all. I was thinking that I needed to share my secrets with the world, but I didn't know where to do it. And then I remembered I have a podcast. Mm. I have an audience. Is this really where we're going right now? <laughs> yes, I need to share my secret. Okay, go ahead. So you know how when you make, <laughs> you know how when you make taco meat, you get the taco seasoning packet and you you mix it in with a little water and the and the ground beef. Sure. Don't do that. No, a hundred percent. Don't do that. Use a fajita seasoning packet. Hmm. It will change your life, Bob. Okay. Great. It's incredible. Thank you so much, Brad. So Brad's right, life we, has been we, changed by, by this burrito, uh, completely <laughs> derailing our, our appreciation for Catherine Bigelow. I'm sure she loves a good burrito as well. We'll find a way to tie those things together. <laughs> Let's say this, Brad. The other thing I wanted to mention is that at the top of the episode, you referred to this as a 2008 film. I referred to it as a 2009 film. And it's because this is one of those small independent movies that, you know, Catherine Bigelow produced this movie. So she was footing the bill for it. It floated around to a couple of film festivals in 2008, and it didn't get picked up for U.S. distribution until 2009. And so it doesn't qualify for the Oscars until 2009. And, you know, it wins its award in 2010. So, like, when you look on IMDb, it says it's a 2008 movie, but nobody in America really saw it until mid to late 2009. Just can one of those movies. Name, can you name the other two movies that did the same thing that were, I think, yeah, the two other best picture winners that also did not come out technically the year before the Oscars. There's a, I mean, there's a couple that happened way back in like the thirties and forties because of when the cutoff was like, uh, Casablanca comes out in the, like, oh, I don't know how to Casablanca comes out at, at a point in 1942 where it doesn't win the Oscar until the year that was 1943. And so it mm -hmm. wins in 1944. So, like, I don't know if you're counting that, but recently I want to say, like, 
Man, was Slumdog Millionaire one of them? No. I don't know. Which one, which two do you have down? Uh, I have Casablanca oh, and nice. Crash in 2004. Crash. I remember that one. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for the facts, Brad. Dude, I'm I'm doing research left and right. One nowadays. fact and no falsehoods to kick off <laughs> kick off this episode. <laughs> One facts and no falsehoods. All right, Brad, it is time for us to start talking about this movie in earnest. And in order to do that, it's time for America's favorite segment, Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Now, Brad has already explained how to make the perfect burrito, but it's time for Brad to explain how to make the perfect plot synopsis on The Hurt Locker. In order to do this, we put... Wait, you want me to describe how to write the synopsis? First, you take your synopsis and then you dump fajita seasoning on it. All right, so we what we do is we put 60 seconds on the clock for Brad to break down the plot of this movie. Usually, Brad is breaking down the plot of a movie that he has seen for the very first time. Brad, was this your first time watching The Hurt Locker? It was. Okay. Oh, nice. Yeah, very first time. All I, right, cool. I remember when it came out and it won Best Picture. I was curious because I, I think I was like gunning for another movie to win Best Picture. I, I don't remember which one it was. But I remember being like a little annoyed that the Hurt Locker won. And so I kind of like out of spite, never watched it. Mm. So he- here I am 15 years later watching the Hurt Locker. There you go. I'm glad I could be of service to you, Brad. Mm. You're welcome. All right. So we have put 60 seconds on the clock for you to break down the plot of this movie. It will be a spoiler filled discussion of the Hurt Locker. So turn back now if you haven't seen it and you want to hear more. Brad, you have a minute on the clock and go. The Hurt Locker is a film about Anthony Mackie, who is not playing the Falcon here in uh, in Iraq. He's just a common soldier and his bombs, I believe the staff sergeant of his bomb squad is killed and is replaced by Jeremy Renner, who is not playing Hawkeye. They're, they're still soldiers, Bob, but they're yep. not super soldiers. Correct. All right. Uh, Jeremy Renner thinks that he's a super soldier and tries to get himself killed about nine different times in the film because he has a junky personality for danger and adrenaline. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That is that is pretty much <laughs> it. I mean, that's that's the movie. He d- he diffuses bombs and does stupid stuff. The and end. He, he, he basically leaves his wife for war. He sure does. The end. The end. All right, that's The Hurt Locker, folks. Best Picture winner of 2009. <laughs> did, I, did I do it justice, Bob? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, like, what at the Oscars, <laughs> when they come out and they present each movie that's nominated for Best Picture, they show, mm-hmm. like, 45 second like, of clips. I think they should just have you do a Brad Explains for each one. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's the next goal for the Film & Whiskey podcast. We need to become either the hosts or presenters at the Oscars. I can't I can only imagine being on stage and being like, oh, Brad, look, it's Timothy Chalamet. And you're like, I have never heard of him for every single person nominated at the Oscars. Honestly, it might draw in the regular viewer. <laughs> I can't I can't wait for you to, to read someone's name. Timothy Chalamet. Chalamet. Hey, you, you know who I wouldn't get wrong? My boy, Denis. Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> Okay, let's talk The Hurt Locker because we're going off the rails here today. The Hurt Locker is a movie that I saw when it came out in 2009. I don't think I caught it before the Oscars. 
and it had gained a lot of momentum. We've actually briefly talked about this movie on multiple episodes because the year 2009 produced three movies, at least three movies that we've done on this podcast that were best picture contenders, uh, those being Avatar and Up in the Air. And we've talked about Avatar in relation to this because Catherine Bigelow and James Cameron were once married. And so they had a very acrimonious divorce. And the uh, Catherine Bigelow versus James Cameron for best director slash best picture thing was a major story in Hollywood. Just a little bit. Up in the Air was a movie that had a ton of momentum up until like, I don't know, three weeks before the, the ceremony. I remember really loving Up in the Air when it came out. It was like my favorite movie of that year by a lot. And I was really pulling hard for it. And then it was like, all right, it's going to be either Up in the Air or Avatar. And in the intervening weeks, the Hurt Locker just started cleaning up, man. I think it won at SAG, and that might have been the thing that put it over the edge. But it, it just seemed like Up in the Air kind of got swallowed up. And when the Hurt Locker won, I was like, all right, I got to check this out now. And I remember really liking it, like thinking it was like an 8 out of 10 kind of movie, mm -hmm. but not really feeling like, wow, this should have won Best Picture. And, yeah. and Brad, it's hard to put myself back in the shoes of 2009 because so much of this movie is about its timeliness and we hadn't really had a good Iraq or Afghanistan war movie to kind of capture what people were thinking about those conflicts at the time. And so I think that this is a good time capsule movie, but I, I it hmm. do you think it's harder or easier for you to evaluate it with almost 15 years of distance now? Honestly, I, I think it's interesting because at this point in my life, I have traveled enough and made enough friends that I actually know a few people who fought in the Iraq at, you know, slash Afghanistan war mm -hmm. and, and were in combat there. And so just based on, you know, asking them some questions and, and hearing about their experiences of being in Iraq – I actually think I appreciate this more in 2023 than I would have in 2009. Mm. I, I mean, partially because I was, you know, I mean, I'm sure when this came out or was being shown in 2009, I was still 18 years old, Bob. Mm -hmm. Like, how, how, how can you actually appreciate the tragedy of war, the tragedy of addiction to adrenaline, like what's going on in his life? Like. The the speech that Renner gives at the end of the movie, which might be the best part of the movie, mm -hmm. to his son about the things that you love in life and how they become less and less and less, 32-year-old Brad, who has two children, can appreciate that and the sadness of that moment, mm -hmm. how like devastatingly broken that man is mm -hmm. and how much trauma he's been through and how he really needs to see a, a really good therapist and not the terrible Colonel Chaplin who sucked. Uh, yeah, obviously, Renner wasn't seeing him, but 32-year-old Brad can appreciate that a lot more, who has experienced more life, who's talked to people who have been in war, who's had children of his own, th than anything I could have appreciated as an 18-year-old. Yeah, I totally get that. I remember, even at the time, there had been, I don't know, four or five Iraq, Afghanistan movies that came out within a, a year or two of each other. And it seemed like and I hate to put it so bluntly because we're talking about a real life conflict. It's a real war. But it almost kind of felt like there was a race in Hollywood for these up and coming directors to make their like big statement war movie that mm -hmm. everyone wanted to have their apocalypse. Now, everyone wanted to have their platoon or their deer hunter that was going to be like 
This is the statement on our times. And the Hurt Locker came out and kind of just became, this is the one we're going to point to. Yeah. But I remember even at the time, there was a lot of pushback from certain corners of the American public, not on this movie in particular, but just on the idea of kind of making these movies, because again, Hollywood's a very liberal place. And so I think the assumption was the people making these movies are very much against the war. And so they're making these movies uh, as propaganda, anti-war propaganda, right? Right. Yeah. The funny thing is watching it now with 15 years of distance, I, I'm I'm almost shocked at how it doesn't take any sort of a stance on the war itself. It mm. reminds me of a lot of these movies that we've talked about on the show, even like Saving Private Ryan doesn't really talk about the ethics of World War II. It's just about guys doing their jobs. And in this case, it's about guys doing their jobs, but it's about the horrifying realities of what those jobs do to their psyches. Yeah, see, I think that she actually is kind of making a statement about the war because the the line that they put into Brian Garrity's mouth, who plays the the third wheel of the specialist group, mm-hmm. um, uh, I think his name is Eldridge in mm-hmm. the movie. Like when he's on the helicopter and he's looking at Jeremy Renner and he says, like, we had to rush into this because you had to get your adrenaline fix. You had to be in war like you had to do this. I guess for me, I think I kind of took that a little bit as Catherine Bigelow, like saying, yeah, like, why did we go into this war just to satisfy some male ego and desire for Hmm. adrenaline? I, I don't know. Could you see it that way? I mean, I don't necessarily think she's super approving of like the conditions that these men get put in. But I guess the overall point I'm trying to make is that there's a huge shift in both American culture and in Hollywood in the early to mid 2000s, which was, you know, post 9-11. It was like whether or not you support this war, we have to support the troops. And like mm-hmm. everything became if you're a good American, you support the troops like I mean, even even Batman supports the troops. Bob. <laughs> like <laughs> we're not going to have another Vietnam where people are coming home from war and getting rocks thrown at them. Right. Like if yeah. you're going to throw rocks at somebody, it's not these guys. Right. And I think that the attitudes of these movies, even if the movies at their core are like, this is a stupid conflict, we shouldn't be there. They're never super judgmental. Yes. Or, or disrespectful of the troops. And I think it's, yeah. it's just really interesting to me because. You know, you've got a guy like Clint Eastwood, who is, I would assume, on an opposite end of the political spectrum from the person making this movie, making American Sniper. And it's kind of American Sniper and this movie are very similar because they're both kind of just giving the same underlying message, which is war is hell. These guys go through a lot. And therefore, you know, I think American Sniper is a little bit more obvious about saying you should support them as a result, whereas this one's more just like, look at what they go through. Mm -hmm. But it's just it's interesting to me that Hollywood stays very much in the camp of like, listen, we're not going to make any sort of value like judgment calls on this. We're just going to portray it and let people take their own assumptions to it. Yeah. And and I think that that's when and this doesn't just apply to war, but in general, I think Hollywood is at its best when it just spends its time examining what makes humans tick. And whether that is in a war situation or a science fantasy situation or, a, a you know, a period piece set in, in 1700s Britain, like movies are at their best when they're exploring why humans do the things that they do. 
and what draws them into areas of being a good human being or being a bad human being and and how we decide what those good how we define good and bad and i think that's that's what this movie does well is it it allows each character to explain why they are the way they are usually without words mm-hmm. and, and i think if anything war movies can do that best where your actions speak louder than any sort of words. And it's because, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the the baseball analogy that Patrick Williams uses. Everybody knows the geography of a war movie. Like everybody knows what's at stake. You like you either put up or shut up. And, and when I say shut up, I mean, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And like that level of tension gives war movies I don't know, a little extra oomph when you are examining the human psyche and why we do the things we do under such great stress. Yeah. I think if I can kind of segue, I don't really want to segue because I think it's related to this, but I don't know that I can talk about the performances without talking about Catherine Bigelow's direction here. And I'll be interested to see how this carries over into a movie like Point Break, because this is just a very different type of movie and it's made, you know, 17 years after Point Break. But... I think what's really interesting watching the way this movie is shot. So it's written by a guy named Mark Bull, who becomes a collaborator with Catherine Bigelow. They also, you know, team back up for Zero Dark Thirty, which we'll watch next week. And, you know, I don't know if it's more her uh, Mark Bull or Catherine Bigelow. But one thing I really love about the way she directs this movie is it reminds me kind of how Ridley Scott did Black Hawk Down which Mm. is like very just kind of very matter of fact. There's not a lot of talking in this movie and it's not overly it's not sentimentalized. There's not like a lot of slow-mo like when people get killed in very tragic situations. Sometimes it's just kind of like, boom, that person's dead. We're moving on because like we can't stop to think about this and we can't stop to process this. And the the kind of churning of war won't let us stop to process this. And I think in that regard, it feels to me much more like real life than some even a movie like Saving Private Ryan. There's a lot of sitting around and, you know, making explicit what you feel inside in Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, it I mean, I think she's a female director, but she understands better than a lot of male directors how guys communicate, which is we don't communicate Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like guys kind of glancing at each other instead of like addressing like, hey, you're you're putting us all in danger. They just kind of look at each other and don't say anything. There's a lot of repression, you know, and then only when guys get alone, do they like let their emotions out? I think it's a really it, it much more replicates the experience that I have with communicating with other men, especially men who have been in high stress situations like this, than a lot of other much more talky war movies. <laughs> Going to the talkies, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I'm with you, Bob. I, for me, the the moments where you dive into their relationships feel like the weakest parts of this movie. Like at any time, you know, Mackie and Renner and Garrity are like in the barracks together drinking and, you know, doing their thing. I com- just immediately lose interest in the film. Hmm. And, and for me, I think it's... It's a result of Renner not being the best actor. I, I think that actually oh, Anthony Mackie is the better actor here. Uh, I really enjoy him in this movie, and and I enjoy him in a lot of his movies. But 
when you're looking at the way guys communicate, I, I think it works better in the high stress situations because there you see, despite their differences, they fight some, they get along some, but at the end of the day, like they're on the same team mm. and they know that. And that's why for me, like the the scene that really didn't work for me, and it's like right before I paused and you know had to go to bed before I watched the rest of it in the morning, I literally stopped it like right after uh Mackie and Garrity think about killing Renner's character. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being like, okay, th- like this movie is just way over the top and ridiculous. Oh, interesting. And and that part just frustrated the heck out of me because it, at the end of the day, regardless of how uh, rogue Renner is going, it's just very unrealistic to me based on what I know of the military, that anybody would ever think about killing a member of their own mm-hmm. unit, let alone somebody like they would never think about killing somebody from the U.S. side of the war, let alone somebody in their own unit. Well, I think, OK, let's talk really briefly about this, because it's important that this movie re- received a lot of pushback from veterans and, and like especially like active duty people and saying like, the way that these three guys just go on these unauthorized missions and mm-hmm. and while they're on unauthorized missions, they're not using comms. They're not like like the actual tactical strategy, like none of this would happen. And so I think you a have to take it with a grain of salt because it's a movie. But B, it does introduce like actual contradictions into things because I can't sit here and say this feels realistic and also B. Everyone who's ever been in this situation says this is not realistic at all. You got to at least admit that, okay, it doesn't seem like they're strictly adhering to what protocols would be. But I I still think that at the end of the day, the way this movie's filmed and the way they capture how real people talk to each other, it feels much more like a documentary than it does like a really cinematic magnum opus kind of war movie. Yeah, I. And and that's the that's the struggle for me though is that as Bigelow moves through this movie, for me it just got boring after a little. Oh while. wow! Like it, it just felt like the first sixty to seventy percent of the movie were just all right. What crazy situation is Renner going to get himself into this time? <laughs> like oh boy, oh boy, he's doing something crazy again. Interesting. And, and I just. The the last third of the movie, I think, worked a lot better for me. But the, the first half of it, it just felt so repetitive. And it was Renner doing something crazy and Mackie being annoyed about it and Garrity not knowing what to do about it and being a little unsure of himself. And, and they just repeated that like three or four times before we actually got to the meat of the film. So I'll say this. I had a very opposite reaction to you. I was really surprised at how well this thing moved. I watched it in one go just a couple hours before we got on here. And it was I mean, like I kept checking to see like what the timing was because we had somewhere to be and I was really running up against it at the last minute. But I kept checking and then I was like, oh, there's only 45 minutes left. Like this this has gone way faster than I thought. And I think that those three, four. So like there's basically the first three scenes of the movie are like three bomb diffusing scenes. One with Guy Pierce at the very beginning in a cameo role, and he he gets snuffed out pretty quickly. And then Jeremy Renner's first two times out with his new you know crew. And I thought all three of them were really expertly done. 
And I think that's kind of my big takeaway from this movie, Brad, watching it again, is that I still don't think it's like I'm I'm still surprised this movie wins best picture. I think it's a really well-made war movie and gets at a lot of things that a lot of Hollywood war movies don't get at. You have to respect the craft. I think that like the craft of this movie, I have such a deeper appreciation for with 15 more years of movie watching under my belt. And we talk about things like the geography of a scene. This was I, I was really, really impressed with Bigelow's ability to put you in a nameless, faceless kind of community or like an abandoned street or an alley or a building. And immediately you understand exactly what they're moving towards, what the geography of the situation is when they are like pinned down and there's people on all sides of them. You always understand like whose vantage point you're looking from or where someone is in relation to somebody else. I think like it's a really well-directed movie. And I will say the the shot that really stuck out to me was the one that they use for the movie poster. Dude, when when the camera is like uh, like the hardest Dutch angle above Renner and he's pulling up on the wires yeah. and there's like six bombs around him. Yep. That's just visually effective. It's such like, a good oh shit moment. Like it's yes. just your gut drops. Yeah, you're just kind of like, oh, man, this yeah. is like way worse. And and she kind of tries to repeat that with the the car when he opens up the trunk and drops mm-hmm. the crowbar. Mm-hmm. And it's just like that. Well, there's 37 bombs in this car. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Yeah. So I, I think it's things like that that she does well, even the way that she she uses Renner in the moments of defusing the bombs, like especially the car bomb scene when he is trying to find the trigger and his his partners in crime are like telling him like, dude, let's get out of here. This isn't worth it. We'll just blow it and go home. And he's like single mindedly determined to find the switch. Like Mm -hmm. the way he's searching through the car feels so claustrophobic and and nerve wracking and and so I, I think there are elements of this yeah. with the editing and the cinematography that that are really incredible. This is peak shaky cam, two thousand and nine. Oh, like this is oh, right yeah. after Cloverfield comes out, and the way this movie is shot is I think I've mentioned this TV show before. It reminds me a lot of uh, the show Twenty Four, where there's like there's shaky cam where there doesn't even necessarily need to be shaky cam a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But I think as the movie progresses and you get used to that, it does. It really helps to kind of solidify this claustrophobic feeling that you're talking about. I think just before we move on to anything else, I want to say again, I think this is one of the better edited movies we've watched in a long, long time. And they, you know, I read a lot about the editing of this movie. Apparently they had like 200 hours of footage that had to get cut down. And the editor said it was like incoherent because they were shooting from all angles. And so it was breaking the 180 degree rule all the time. And so they had to kind of cobble together something that looked coherent. And not only do I think they did that really well, but like even in moments like you're talking about where Renner's inside the car looking for this initiating system to blow the thing up and they keep cutting back outside where Mackie and Garrity are pinned down and they're getting really, really paranoid out there. There's this one cut I specifically remember where the tension's getting ratcheted up and it's real quiet as they're like looking around to see what's happening. And the sound editing kicks in before the cut. And it's it's Renner plunging a knife into the back seat and ripping the fabric so he can try to mm-hmm. find this wire. And it sounds like a gunshot. And so like it was like a jump scare almost. 
And it really made me realize this movie, the way they do the tension in this movie and the way they kind of do have jump scares sometimes, the atmosphere they're trying to create is a horror movie. And I think it's really effective. Well, and I love that you use the horror movie reference because the key thing of a horror movie, like especially like let, let's talk about Alien. The key thing of Alien is that these creatures that are trying to kill you are wholly foreign and unable to communicate with the crew of the the Nosdormo. Is that right? Nostromo. Yeah. Nostromo. Thank you. And that is the sense you get from the American troops when they are walking around. They can't communicate with the locals. And and there's this fear that every single local is out to get you. Mm -hmm. And if that's not more horror film esque, I I don't know what else you could hope for. And And I think that that's like the key thing that makes this movie work is the... I think it captures the tension you feel as a soldier to be in a foreign place where you don't know who's friendly and who's an enemy, mm-hmm. right? Like in World War II, you are fighting out in the fields, out in the the forests. In Iraq, you're in a desert. Like you can't just go fight out in the dunes. Like you can, but in the end, at the end of the day, most of the fighting goes on in the cities where the citizens live. Mm-hmm. And as a soldier, you're just constantly on edge. You're not sure why people are videotaping you, what they're talking about when you hear them speaking. And so I I think that they do that incredibly well to give that sense of dread you would feel as a soldier. All right, Brad, I think it's time for us to hit pause. And it's unfortunate because we haven't really talked about these performances. But let's go ahead and drink this whiskey. We'll come back and we'll talk about, you know, all the performances and all the random cameos that this movie has as well. Yeah. Uh, so what do you say we get to this Michter's? Dude, I am so pumped. Like, Michter's rye seems to pop up on everybody's, like, you have to try this rye list. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm really jazzed for today, Bob. All right, let's get to it. All right, so today we are checking out Michter's US-1 Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey. This is a single barrel whiskey from the Michter's label. As Brad says... Michter's is a really interesting brand in the world of whiskey because their higher end stuff, in particular, their toasted barrel finished stuff can get really, really expensive. Michter's 10, really expensive. You know, I think they have a 20 year that I just saw my friend, uh, our friend Zach Johnston post about on Instagram, like thousands of dollars. And so like even even their regular stuff, which is what we're drinking today, it's had a little bit of a trickle down effect. Like it's like a mini Buffalo Trace where people know that the really pricey stuff is good. And so they're snatching up even like their baseline offerings. Yeah. And I'll I'll give you a sneak preview. They should be. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm popping open my bottle right now, Brad. I have not tried this prior to this episode, so I'm going to be drinking it live. A little bit about Michter's. So this is a resurrected brand that came back in the 1990s. Uh, It was a very, very well-established brand. In fact, it honors the first American distillery ever. Uh, They say that it has roots going all the way back to 1753. That sounds nice and fancy, but the current iteration has only been around since the 1990s. We've interviewed their master distiller, Dan McKee. Super great guy. Dude, what an incredible, like super genuine down-to-earth dude. 
They did not start distilling their own stuff until 2019. So this is a sourced product that we have in the bottle right now. It's not age stated. So we know that this rye is at least four years old. They don't disclose where they source their rye from. They also don't disclose the mash bill. We know that it's not 100% rye, but I, I can't tell you anything beyond that. The only other thing I really know about it is that it's 42.4% ABV or 84.8 proof. This is a pretty low proof rye, Brad. We don't usually get back down into the 80s very often. No, we don't. And, uh, you know, a few weeks back, we got into the top floor for Benchmark. Mm -hmm. And I think both of us were like, man, this is like an 80-something proof whiskey that actually has some flavor. And yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying it. And once again today, there's a lot of flavor here. And I'm like, shoot, if you can get solid flavor in the 80 to 90 proof range, that's a killer product, man. All right, why don't you kick us off, Brad? I'm, I'm just sticking my nose in my glass over here, but I'm sure you've got notes already. Yeah, so the for me, it started off with like a, a small pop of orange zest, moved into some butterscotch. The rye spice kind of hit me midway through, along with some really freshly ground black pepper. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, I, I almost got like a, a, a fresh loaf of sourdough bread. And I think that this nose is incredible bob for me bob it's a nine out of ten wow okay so you are definitely the rye guy of the two of us but i still like a good rye every now and then and this one was really interesting on the nose the first thing that jumped out of the glass for me is a note i've never ever gotten on a rye and it was really really ripe cantaloupe like mm. when you cut into a cantaloupe that's like maybe a little too squishy and you got to eat it really fast it's like that um, and I really liked it. But behind that, it had a creaminess to it that I often don't get on rye either. So it was like cantaloupe and vanilla. And I kept looking at the bottle like, did I is this a rye? Did I pick up the right bottle? <laughs> and then the black pepper hit. And even more than actual like rye grain, this presents as just like you said, freshly ground black pepper. It's really mm -hmm. nice. I can tell for sure this is not a 100 percent rye because I don't get a lot of rye grain on this. But it's interesting, and I'm intrigued about what I'm going to taste. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the on the nose, dude. We I moved into the palate, and this is this is like heaven for me, Bob. So we use the flavor caramel a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But for me, that almost feels like a a broad generic, like just eau de caramel, right? <laughs> yeah. For me on this note, this isn't just caramel. It's like the little tiny square wrapped in like the the paper caramel that you get at like your grandma's house. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. That is what I got on the palate here, along with some fresh mint, some rye bread, and then like it almost turned into like a nutty candied almond, like a sweet almond feel. Once again, I think this is absolutely delectable and the fact that there is so much flavor punched into this palette without it being high proof like i didn't quite feel like i was drinking water here because there's a little bit of viscosity that's really nice mm -hmm. but it's it, when you are at the lower proof points it's just easier to drink bob mm -hmm. and i really liked it a lot and i gave it a nine and a half out of ten wow okay i'm definitely not there I don't dislike this. I just don't I'm not getting a lot on this. And I'm, you know, as you were giving your tasting notes, I kept taking extra sips trying to find it. But like it's really thin on the front of the palate. 
Like if we're talking about mouthfeel, it is really watery for me on the front. But then when you get to the back of the palate, it doesn't necessarily get any thicker or like more viscous, but all that flavor comes out and it has a, a burst of heat, not like ethanol burn, but like actual warmth that comes out. It really does kind of spread across your palate like a much higher proof whiskey would. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give it that. The flavors I'm picking up, Brad, don't really remind me of a rye, though. Like, it has some graininess to it, but I'm almost getting, like, barley, and I don't know if this is a four-grain, like, if it has wheat in it, but it almost reminds me of, like, there's a wheat whiskey we tried from Starlight, I think, like, a Mm -hmm. season or two ago. It almost reminds me of, like, a barrel-proof wheat whiskey. It has some really good grainy notes to it and a lot of oak. I just don't, like... I don't even know if I would pick up that this was a rye whiskey if you just set it in front of me blind. And so I'm wondering, like, how much corn does this have in it? How much barley does this have in it? It's an interesting whiskey, but, like, it doesn't have a lot of rye character for me. So I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on the taste. Bob, you're just absolutely crazy. <laughs> like, Dude, we've had some ryes that are like, oh, this is unmistakably made of rye. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It- and this is one of them. This, you, the, like, this is mistakenly so made of rye. No, like, the, no. I, I just, I, I can tell that it's not a, a, a holy rye experience. Sure. It, I'm, I'm with you. It's probably not a 100%. Well, we know it's not 100% rye. But I'll tell you, there is enough mint and rye flavor on the palate to, to very clearly delineate this as a rye. Hmm. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, I'll put it more succinctly, you're wrong. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, we got it. We got it. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool. Uh, on the finish here, it tails off a little bit. I think this is where the the lack of proof points uh, comes back to bite it a little bit. For me, I still enjoy it a lot. There's some really rich mint. Uh, the oak comes out pretty stro- strong at the end. The only flavor that really lingers for me for a while is the the little bit of rye spice that's there, some of the black pepper. Um, I'll give it an 8 out of 10 on the finish. Uh, it comes down a little ways from the the nose and the palate, but still a really strong, strong whiskey. Yeah, it's funny. I agree with everything you said, like in terms of the flavors that are left behind. I don't agree that it's a step down, though. I think this is actually where the most flavor of the whole experience lives, is what's left on your palate afterwards. Lots of black pepper, lots of oak. It's really nice. Uh, again, I don't know that I would call it a rye if you just gave it to me blind. But, I mean, that's apparently my problem, and I really liked the finish on this. I'm going to once again give it a seven and a half out of ten. When it comes to balance, I think I'm actually going to give this a ten out of ten, Bob. Wow. Like, like it's just complex enough to highlight just everything that's going on here. I think that they take all of the flavors, they marry them together, and just give you an incredible experience at 84, 85 or proof like Mm -hmm. i am really blown away with what they're doing at mictors with this stuff all right so on balance i'm gonna give it i'll give it a seven again like i think it's a pretty well balanced whiskey i just don't know if this is like my cup of tea you know what i'm saying i like mictors bourbon a lot this rye Mm -hmm. so far is kind of like it's a good i think it's a good introductory rye like, if you're not used to drinking rye, I think this is, like, the flavor profile where it's close enough to bourbon. It's, cl- it's even close enough to some scotches for me that you could get away with, like, hey, try this, and it won't be, like, whiplash on your tongue if you've been drinking something else before it. So, I like it. Not my favorite thing in the world. I'll give it a 7 out of 10. 
All right, so in the state of Ohio, you can buy Michter's US-1 Kentucky Rye Whiskey for $44.99. I think that's a nine and a half value, Bob. I'm like, okay, go ahead. Keep going. No, no, you're good. Everybody knows. I love this. You do. I'm not crazy about it. However, it's a single barrel. And that's the thing. Like, you can never really judge a brand based solely on one barrel. So I will give that caveat. Brad, is this like a noticeably higher quality product than Benchmark single barrel was? Yes. Okay. Is it like way far and away even even factoring in like you like rye better than you like bourbon? Like you think this is just a higher quality product? Yes. One hundred percent. Because the the fact that like that, you know, the benchmark single barrel was twenty five dollars and like it felt like a very low quality single barrel. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This feels like a very high quality single barrel and it only costs forty five dollars like. For me, that that seems like a no brainer. Well, and I think my hesitation is it's been watered down to 84 proof. And so it's like an even lower proof, I think, than the benchmark single barrel was. It's pretty rare to see a single barrel that is like this diluted. So I'm really struggling to find value in this, Brad. I know you really like it. I think I'm just going to give it a six and a half on value. Yeah, I'm at a 46 out of 50, Bob. Oh, my gosh. A 46? Just, just going to put this out here. This is... Above the 45 out of 50 mark for me. I mean, yeah, that's a 92 out of 100. This is this is maybe your second or third highest rated whiskey in the history of the film and whiskey podcast. Yeah, it's incredible, Bob. Get on the get on the train. <laughs> I uh, Well, the train that I'm on is numbered 35.5. <laughs> so I am a, a full Ten and a half points below you. We're coming out to an average of an 81 point. Well, I guess that's not an average. We're coming out to a sum total of an 81 and a half out of 100 or a 40.75 out of 50. That is entirely because of Brad's really, really high score. And dude, like legitimately, I don't say this to be condescending. I know it's probably going to sound condescending. I really am like super happy for you when you find whiskeys like this that are like this far up your alley. But it's just like... (laughs) It doesn't check the boxes. I thought you were going to say this far up your ass. (laughs) (laughs) It just doesn't check the boxes for me. And you know which boxes I like in my whiskeys, and they don't appeal to you as much. So it's like, this is a Brad G whiskey through and through, and I'm really happy we got to try it. I would give that like a 7 out of 10 condescending. But I'm being serious. Like, I I as your friend, I am happy that you got to try something you loved, even if I didn't care for it as much as you did. I appreciate that, Bob. I wish that you could appreciate goodness the way I do. <laughs> that, that, that is me being condescending. <laughs> Let's get back into talking about the Hurt Locker. What do you say? <laughs> Let's do it, man. Boom! That was Michter's U.S. Rye Kentucky One Whiskey. <laughs> man. Something, 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 something rye. A whiskey that detonated our taste buds. Oh, oh, detonated our friendship at the very least. It diffused our friendship. <laughs> Bob, you know what time it is? Uh, is it two facts and a falsehood time? It is time for Canada's favorite segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob. To our right and what is wrong. Two 
facts and a falsehood. That's right. Two facts and a falsehood. The part of the podcast where Brad makes stuff up. Now, you may be thinking, isn't that what Brad does at every part of the podcast? And, <laughs> 90% of the time. And that's true. However, this is the designated place for him to do that. Uh, this is where he <laughs> presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which is a complete fabrication, and it's my job to suss out the lie. Brad, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, the Hurt Locker's box office clocked in at number 146 overall for the year with a pull of $12,671,105, of which Bob supported it for what, like $9 worth back then? I did not. I didn't see it in the theater. Oh, that's right. You didn't even see it. Man, do you even care about cinema? I I don't. Uh, It came just in front of 12 rounds, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And sunshine cleaning. Mm. Fact number two, Army Staff Sergeant John Everett was brought on to help ensure authenticity to the actual experience of the war, but said that his suggestions were so often ignored that he could not continue on with the project and quit halfway through. Wow. Fact number three, the three songs in the film by Ministry, Fear is a Big Business, Palestina, and Kyber Pass are from their 10th album, the politically driven Rio Grande Blood, which criticizes the war in Iraq and former President George W. Bush. It is also an anachronism, as the movie is set in 2004, but the album was released in 2006. Hmm. I think number one is a fact, but let me just double check. When you're talking about, like, uh, domestic gross of the year. We're talking 2009, right? Because it doesn't. It didn't come yes. out. Okay. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere that like this was one of only a handful of best picture nominees or best picture winners that hadn't even like made their money back when, when they won best picture. Mm-hmm. I think it got a slight bump after the fact, but that would have been in 2010. So that sounds about right. Uh, number two sounds plausible and we will talk a lot about this next week with zero dark 30. That movie came under a lot of fire about what Mm -hmm. may or may not have been fabricated after the fact. So, you know, who's to say if the seeds of that weren't sown here? Fact number three, I have absolutely no idea. You know, you might be (laughs) like, oh, there it was actually their ninth album. (laughs) So I don't know. Um, I'll go ahead and say three is the falsehood, but I don't really know. Number three is a true fact about the movie. All right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> number, number two is the false. Uh, all right, cool, cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are kind of presaging what we're going to talk about next week with Zero Dark Thirty. Even yeah, though I'm, what I remember about Zero Dark Thirty is that I liked it a lot better than this movie. So I'm interested to see if like, you know, <laughs> listen, if you're going to lie, what's, what was the thing that Luther said? If you're going to sin, sin boldly, you know? Yes. Like, yep. Make yeah. it make a good movie if you're going to make shit Dude, up. Dude, way to get a good Martin Luther quote in here. <laughs> oh, I, was you know not, I, I was not <laughs> expecting that as we talked about the Iraq war. I, I do my best, Brad. <laughs> oh, man. So we we honestly haven't really talked about the performances a, a ton, Bob. I, mm. I kind of mentioned my thoughts. Where are you at on the performances of our of our two main actors, you know, Renner and, and Anthony Mackie? Well, let's start with Anthony Mackie because I – I have a feeling I disagree with you about Jeremy Renner. I think Anthony Mackie, to your point, is the standout performance of this movie. And I think it's a little bit 
you know, if I could put a caveat on that, it's a little bit easier because he is a person who is experiencing normal human emotion and mm-hmm. normal reactions to things. And so yeah. he's much easier to empathize with than Renner. However, even with that said, Mackie's final scene in the Humvee with Renner, where he just finally has this realization of like, you basically as an audience member realize there are two types of people in this world and one reacts like that and one reacts like that. And yes. and that's literally the point of that scene. And Mackie yeah. hits his breaking point where he's like, I hate this. I can't do this anymore. Not only that, like, I have to have a child. Like, I'm going yeah. home. I'm going to have a son now. And watching him yeah. kind of break down in that moment. It was incredible. Really emotionally affected me. Um, and the and then the scene takes a turn into, like, trying to psychologize, you know, uh, Renner's character. But for me, the most effective part of that scene was Anthony Mackie. He's a fantastic actor. I hate that people only know him from the MCU because he's kind of underutilized there. And I'm glad to see that he's like getting back into projects now that are not MCU related. But he's the best performance in the movie. I wish he had, you know, won an Oscar for this, Brad. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think what I love most about your point of these are the two types of people in the world is that Bigelow doesn't make a a value judgment on that. Mm-hmm. Like both of them are effective at their jobs. Like like Mackie is a good soldier. He he does his job well, even as he's questioning the things that they're doing and the things that Renner specifically are, is doing. And yet at the end of the movie. He goes home and ostensibly has a kid because that's that's his goal. And Renner has to return to the battlefield. And neither of them are wrong. Mm -hmm. Like both of them are presented as capable at their jobs, unique, interesting individuals who who are engaging in this life the best that they can. Huh? Wow. I don't have that read on it at all. Like I I think that it's one thing to present someone without judgment with the understanding with the audience that like this person is fundamentally broken and that's Renner's character. Like, I don't think she's being like, yeah, this is a normal positive reaction that you can have. I think it's very much like, no, this dude is like really, really messed up. And this is the only way he knows how to engage with his surroundings. Well, and that's why, that's why I think that the opening quote actually does the movie a disservice. The, the whole idea of war is a drug the the classical understanding of drugs at, at least the one that i was raised with was that like drugs are a choice you know like the the stupid just say no yep like drugs are a choice and, and it's just what we you know people do because they're bad and they make bad decisions and i think that you kind of get that a little bit here with jeremy renner whereas if you if you view drugs through the actual lens of they are used to numb the trauma that we experience in life. That makes a lot more sense for Renner's character, that that he has undergone something in his childhood that he is running as fast away from as he can. Mm-hmm. And war is the drug of choice to disassociate from his experience in life. All right. So tell me a little bit more about what you think of Renner here, because not only did you say that this performance wasn't great for you, but you said... I don't think Jeremy Renner is a very good actor. And I like that seems kind of harsh to me. So make your case. <laughs> well, speaking as one of America's greatest actors of all time, hmm. I I would have to say that Renner is just wooden. Uh, he just constantly comes across as 
not being fluid in his movements. I, I don't think that he does. See, you're, I can already hear what you're about to say, Bob. I just, he comes across as so soulless. Hmm. And I and it works in this movie because that's kind of the point. Like, he's only supposed to be alive when he's, you know, in incredible danger. But I guess maybe I'm letting other performances of Renner bleed into this, where I just, I don't enjoy Renner as an actor. And I, I think in so many of his movies, he kind of comes across as empty and inauthentic Hmm. and that like for me that's a major sin wow yeah i just don't get that i mean i think that he really leverages in some in some movies he comes across as like the the slimy cocky guy and i think in this one he's kind of cocky but it's more like he's a he's a desperate junkie and i think you get that here he doesn't have interpersonal communication skills. He can he I mean he only communicates with the guys when he's drunk and I think he plays that really well. And there was a couple moments he doesn't like in the face he doesn't really look like this actor, but there were a couple moments where some facial expressions that he was making reminded me a lot of the way that Sean Penn played his character in Mystic River. And it just like when that when that clicked for me, it was something about the way he was holding his face in one moment. And I was like, "Oh, it's Sean Penn." And then from the rest of the movie on, I was like, this is a fantastic Sean Penn performance. <laughs> like, and I think that's what I really loved about it. Like, it was really good. And I, I, I'm with you. Like, I don't know that Renner is like one of our best overall actors, but I absolutely think he deserved his Oscar nomination. I think this is a really good performance playing a man who has repressed every emotion and only knows how to chase the high of being constantly at risk of getting blown up. Yeah, I, I think the the most interesting point for him as a character is the the one time he kind of comes to life outside of military situations is with this young Iraqi boy who sells him a you know a crap DVD and plays soccer with him a little bit, and I think it's in those moments that you you start to tease out a little bit of his character and you get to see him for who he might really be, but there's not enough of it. And, and I think that's that's why for me his character just becomes very repetitive and and frankly just boring as a character. He doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't move. He doesn't change. He's just who he is. So I don't, maybe it's the writing that I that I like less than than Renner's performance. All right, let me just push back a little bit. Like, does Travis Bickle go anywhere in Taxi Driver? Like. He's crazy from the get go. He gets more crazy as the movie goes on until there's like this, you know, orgy of violence at the end of the movie. Like, yeah, but uh, the movie's not about Travis Bickle. The movie is about society and and how it treats people like Travis Bickle. Well, isn't that what this movie's about? Isn't this movie about what happens when you put a person in this situation over and over and over again? No, the movie is about him and his journey to anesthetize the pain that he's in. Hmm. And he just keeps doing the same thing over and over again. And that's boring. <laughs> you are like, I love that you speak only in absolutes, Brad. Only a Sith would do that. <laughs> like, hey, call, me a, call me a Sith, baby. <laughs> I just like, sometimes you're like, yeah, this movie didn't work for me, but I can see blah, blah, blah. And this time around, you're just like, it's boring. It's stupid. <laughs> Jeremy Renner, bad actor. Like. Mictor's like, Rye, incredible. Like in a way that I, I don't know that this movie deserves anyone ever being that harsh towards it. Like <laughs> at, at its worst, this movie is fine. At its best, so, it's really good. So what you're saying is the movie barely merits your attention, 
<laughs> Which is, is probably like the, the, the worst thing you could say about it. Yeah, you could say about a movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in in the spirit of that, I'm really interested to see what you're going to pair this up with, Brad, because it's time oh. for our last segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the podcast where we pair this movie up with another film to make the perfect double feature. Brad, do you want to go first? Yeah, I just want to pair it with a movie that's actually good. Sicario. (laughs) Oh, Sicario. I didn't think about that one. Dude. Sicario just lives in my brain rent-free. I want to watch it again. I think it's probably one of the best films about modern warfare that, I, that I've ever seen, mm. and I love it, and it's incredible. Interesting, because it is, so, like, yes. you're right, it is about warfare, but it's like a bureaucratic war more mm-hmm. than, huh. And yet, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in that pairing because aesthetically, these movies are nothing alike. Like, yes. that movie has these kind of, very long takes of Roger Deakins camera kind of floating in and out of situations. And this movie is, you know, cut, 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 shake, 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 shake over and over and over. Yeah. Like I said, I want, I want good cinematography. Oh oh my gosh, dude. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'm going to, this is hard because I think there's like at least three or four movies I could pair this with. I think I talked about Black Hawk Down already. What movie do I, I I could pair it with Jarhead. I think that would be a really good one. <laughs> what's what's the one? It's like a marionette movie, P- America Police Force something. <laughs> America. <laughs> yes, yeah. you, you should you should pair it with that, Bob. Brad, I think the movie that I'm going to pair this with is The Deer Hunter. Because Ooh. you know, we haven't done The Deer Hunter yet. I'm excited to do that someday. De Niro. De Niro. It's one of the better movies about the way that you get that that war messes up your psyche and that people get sucked into the the drug of war. And that's obviously the theme of this movie. Man, I, I just feel like there's another movie out there that I had pegged as this is going to be my let's make it a double. And I can't think of it. But I think if I have to give Tropic, it to a Tropic second Thunder. place, Tropic Thunder, that's it. If there has to be a second place winner, the Deer Hunter is a pretty darn good one. Yeah, I'm I'm still waiting on the better one, Bob. God bless it. I only want I only want the best from you. And unfortunately, I know I'm not going to get that from you in final scores here. So, here's the thing, Bob. I at this point in the episode, I'm just trying to give you crap to annoy you. Sure. I think I think that this is a pretty solid film. I I don't think in almost any other year it would win best picture. But when I looked at the lineup for Best Picture nominees in 2010, right? Right. I Like, other than Up in the Air, I don't know if there's a single movie on there that I was like, oh, that's an obvious Best Picture winner. Mm-hmm. And even Up in the Air, I absolutely love that movie. It doesn't quite have a Best Picture winner feel to it. It's a little bit too goofy, has a little bit too much Anna Kendrick to like be like, hey, this should win Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So while I think that it it rightfully gave Hurt Locker a run for its money, I I think it it kind of makes sense that this one like it like it's a really good movie. Um, uh, at this point, I'm just vamping. I am going to give this a seven and a half out of ten. Okay, I I I like it. I would come back to it at some point. 
I think I would just be curious to come back to it in a few years and see if I can allow the cinematography to draw me in a little more. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of 10. And it's funny because I really haven't talked about the things that didn't work for me. And it's pretty much the opposite of of your thing. Like, I thought that the repetitiveness <laughs> of diffusing the bombs was really effective because, A, they were really extended sequences. And she is so good. And her editors are so good at, at drawing tension out of those situations that it wasn't diminishing returns to me the way it was to you. And it really made the movie click. It's when he goes off on his little side quest and just like runs through the streets of Baghdad in a hoodie. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. wait, what are we doing here? Like, and he then was, he, he was he, doing his best Tom Cruise imitation. Well, uh, yeah. And then he goes on to be in Mission Impossible a couple of years later. So, <laughs> you know, and then how does he get back to the base? They just show him like running back to the base and there's tons of eyes on him. And then all of a sudden he's like at the gate, like, oh, mm-hmm. glad I made it back. Wait, wait yeah. a minute. How did this? That's when the movie started to fall apart a little bit to me. <laughs> the the line where the guard is like, oh, I'll let you go if you tell me where it is. <laughs> where, where's the whorehouse? <laughs> I think it's really well done. And I think it's one of those movies, Brad, that I'm glad we're waiting until almost episode 200 to do, because I really do want to emphasize how good of a, a movie it is from a uh, craft standpoint. It's a really well crafted, well shot, well choreographed movie. Uh, I just again, I don't know if it's like a transcendently good movie. All those movies from 2009 feel very much like 2009. It's cool to have it as a time capsule, but I don't know if it's anything more than that. So it's an eight and a half for me. So that's bringing us out to an eight out of 10. I'm excited to see how this compares to Zero Dark Thirty, which I really thought was the better movie. But it also was like a much like a much more ambitious movie. So, I mean, Hmm. we're going to check it out next week. Let us know what you think of The Hurt Locker. Did you see it when it was in theaters? Were you one of the 12 people that saw it? Or have you caught it (laughs) in the intervening years? Where does it rank for you among, you know, modern war movies? Let us know on our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto the Discord. We are on there every single day talking about movies, whiskey, and absolutely anything else that is going on in our world today. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we will be back talking about Zero Dark Thirty. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.